Welcome to Just Talking Story, brought to you by LifeWithAngie.com, home of the blog, We're Not Crazy, We're Just a Little Insane. Now, let's talk story. December 1941. At six foot three, 185 pounds, Leo didn't look his age. Most people assumed he was 17 to 19 years old, and this is exactly what the Army recruiter in Buffalo, New York, believed. It was Monday, December 8th, the day after the infamous attack by Japan at Pearl Harbor. Righteous indignation was felt throughout the country. Everyone understood there were worldwide tensions on the political scene. Nazi Germany was on a land grab in Europe. Japan was taking over the Asian arena. But a sneak attack on that Sunday morning was a catalyst for the feelings that were sweeping through the country. The natural thing for a young man to do was to go to the aid of his country, but normally a not-quite-15-year-old would be turned away. Leo was not your normal not-quite-15-year-old boy. Not only did he look much older, but he was already a seasoned con man. The only thing that stopped him from succeeding in his quest was that he couldn't pass the physical. From the age of two years old and on up, Leo was raised in a children's hospital in Bath, New York. This was because he had fallen through his grandmother's rear porch and permanently damaged his hip. In the late 1920s, the medicine was not as advanced as we have today, and young Leo was sentenced to 12 years and more in a body cast until his body was big enough for the rudimentary repairs that were available for such an injury. The repairs consisted of a fusion of the hip bone. This resulted in a permanent limp, as well as the inability to bend his right hip. Most children would have suffered mentally as well as physically, but not Leo. He had that spirit of adventure that rivaled the imagination. At 10 years old, he had learned that if he could get his buddies in the children's ward to lower him out the window using bed sheets as a rope, he could get a clear view of the autopsy room that was conveniently located two stories below. Little did he care that he had to be lowered down into an open ventilating shaft and that he had to hang there with his face within inches of a rapidly circulating metal fan. What mattered to him was that he was able to entertain his companions with a vivid description of the activities going on in there and the fact that it was an adventure it really helped them keep their minds off their unfortunate lot in life. This great fun was only halted when the coroner happened to look up And to his surprise, he saw the smiling face of a young boy on the other side of that whirling blade. Well, after being rejected at the recruiting station, Leo ended up in New York City. This is where he found out how useful his schmaltz was. This is what he would call his ability to fool almost everyone around him. There was a shortage of men in the workforce due to the ongoing war, so he found it quite easy to get a job as a taxi driver. He was very adept at shifting the transmission and working the clutch, breaking gas with his left foot. No such thing as an automatic transmission back then. He had a room in a low-rent hotel and spending money in his pocket. Not bad for a 15-year-old. Leo also had striking good looks, accompanied by strong shoulders and a large muscular chest from the years of propelling himself around in that body cast. This provided him with plenty of female companionship, as most of his clients from the taxi proved to be the young women who were, quote-unquote, war widows. Their husbands were off in Europe and Asia fighting the Axis powers, and these young ladies found Leo a somewhat irresistible temptation. He, of course, was very willing. 
During one of his many overnight stays in these lonely women's apartments, he found a complete pilot's uniform for the United States Air Force. Leo helped himself to the new set of clothing and left the apartment, never to return. The uniform fit perfectly, and Leo was now a striking figure in it. Without hesitation, he tried out his new persona. It wasn't only an additional attraction for his female diversions, but it also allowed him access to the local military bases for free food. All he had to do was con his way onto the base. Now, this was an easy thing for him. He played off his limp as a war injury. His lack of papers was explained as a result of several nights' leave for rest and recreation at the local house of ill repute. With a knowing wink and a smile, the guards of the gate usually let him in. It was on one of those visits that he noticed that there was a C-47 military transport plane loading in one of the runways. He asked a passing airman where the plane was going and was told it's on its way to San Francisco, California. Seeing as how he'd never been there, he thought, well, it's about time that he went. He went up to the officer in charge of the line of people waiting, and he explained that he was trying to get back to San Francisco to see his girlfriend. He had gotten rolled at the local bar and lost his leave and travel papers. Could you be a pal? Let me on, he asked. The loading officer looked at this obviously wounded veteran of the war and was won over by his friendly smile and sincere attitude. Sure, he said. There's several empty seats. Give her a kiss for me when you get there. You know, it's amazing this country won the war with this kind of security, but that was a different era. Everyone was not yet as uh, jaded and suspicious as we are today. Leo settled into his seat and smiled to himself. <laughs> this was his first time in an airplane. That was something that the rest of the passengers would have never suspected as they smiled and felt proud of this obviously experienced and injured young veteran pilot who looked so confident in his neat uniform, complete with the brass pilot insignias pinned to his collar. Leo even received pats on the shoulder from the pilot and the co-pilots of the flight as they went by on their way up to the cockpit. You see, they were glad that they were stateside, just ferrying military families and personnel across the country. And not like this poor young man who could barely fit in his seat with his right leg projecting out into the aisleway. Even though he was younger than they were, they felt a little intimidated by his confident gaze, his knowing wink that they received from him in return. After the third change of crew in Salt Lake City, Utah, the plane started its last leg on the long flight. After the plane leveled off at their cruising altitude, Leo was awakened from his dozing by a hand on his shoulder. It was the flight attendant. In a hushed voice, he said the pilot wanted to talk to him. And would he please come up to the cockpit? The first thing that Leo noticed when he got there was an almost comatose co-pilot strapped into a jump seat behind the pilot's seat. The pilot quickly explained that he needed a favor desperately. You see, we both tied one on at the bar last night, he said, and they barely made it to the flight in time. He was able to get the co-pilot on board without raising any suspicion, but he was in a terrible fix. As he hadn't any sleep in 24 hours, he was suffering from a massive hangover and needed a couple of hours sleep. Be a pal, he said. Keep an eye on things while I get some rest. If the breasts find out about this, we'll be court-martialed. Well, the last thing Leo wanted to do was try to fit in the co-pilot's seat, but he felt he had no option. The pilot really did look bad. As he tried to settle into the seat, the first thing he noticed was there was a lot of very strange-looking controls and knobs in front of him. This was no three-speed New York taxi. As he glanced around, he didn't notice that the pilot was staring at his obvious lack of knowledge of the controls. Even the greenest of pilots knew the basic controls of such a simple plane as the C-47. 
He must be a German saboteur, the pilot thought to himself. See, just last week he had received a notice from the high command about recent discoveries of embedded saboteurs on the East Coast. He said, you know, pal, I'm feeling much better. Why don't you just go back to your seat? I'll get you if I need you. This very relieved 17-year-old settled back into his seat as the pilot was radioing his find to San Francisco. Leo was greeted by four military policemen on stepping off the stairs from the plane. The only view he had of San Francisco was from the back of the military truck while he sat between two very large and well-armed soldiers. The hostility in their eyes was evident as they glowered at him. Even his patented warm smile and wink was greeted with hostility. It was several days later that the military finally discovered that their saboteur was, in fact, a 17-year-old con man from New York. Leo had turned over, was turned over to the civil authorities, and he was charged with fraud, theft of government property, kidnapping for sitting in the co-pilot seat while the plane had passengers, although this charge was later dropped. This was the first of many times that Leo became a guest in the Crossbar Hotel, as he would call it. I remember as a young boy visiting him at Chino State Prison in California. Yes, you see, Leo was my father. And this visit in Chino was the result of another one of his uh, quote-unquote business deals that had gone bad. Growing up with a con man and a gambler as a father led to a very interesting childhood. Now, my wife, Angie, says that my childhood was uh, dysfunctional, that we had a dysfunctional family, but I disagree. We had a lot of love and good times also. I learned how to be outgoing, to make friends quickly from our often and mostly necessary relocations during my childhood. This fact also resulted in my attending 19 different schools. Another thing I learned was to enjoy what you have, when you have it, for the things can change overnight, as they often did for me. I vividly recall coming home from school when I was 13 years old to find two Ford Victorias in our driveway at the home that we lived on in a mountain road bordering the Russian River in Northern California. I walked into the house and found four armed men in suits standing inside with my mother as she was quickly packing some suitcases. These men were FBI agents that had come to take me and my mother away as there was a hit squad from the Las Vegas mob on the way to kill us. This was to keep my father from turning state evidence and testifying against the, the gang's drug activity. It seemed my father had acquired a large gambling debt with these nefarious characters. They presented him with the choice of a crippling beating and still owe the money, or cooperate with them in a smuggling operation that they ran, bringing marijuana into the country via Mexico and pay off the debt that way. My father, being a somewhat sensible person, along with the fact that he didn't really relish the thought of being back in a body cast, he uh, chose the second option. The drug runners took him down to Mazatlan, Mexico. They set him up with a new four-wheel drive pickup truck with a large camp over a cab over camper on the back, a 26-foot cabin cruiser boat that had flotation tanks removed and the hull was filled with packaged marijuana. He was given a fake vehicle registration for both the truck and the boat in case they were checked at the border. He was also provided with a fake American wife and a child. His instructions were to drive this new family of his back into the United States at the border crossing at Nogales, Arizona to drop off this family and then proceed to Las Vegas, Nevada and deliver the truck and boat to them. Well, the border crossing went without a hitch. Leo was used to impersonating people, so it was no big deal for him. 
He's so posing as a uh, vacationing family man coming back home from a fishing trip in Mexico was standard practice. The border guard didn't even think twice about this friendly guy who confidently answered all his questions about their trip without even the slightest evidence of being nervous or guilty about anything. After they crossed the border, Leo dropped off the woman and her child as instructed in Nogales and proceeded on his journey. It was a long drive. This gave him time to think. Way too much time to think, as it turned out. Somewhere between Nogales and Phoenix, he had set upon a plan. When he arrived in Phoenix, he quickly found some individuals of ill repute who were more than happy to buy the contents of the flotation tanks at a discounted price. They even helped him find a business associate of theirs to buy the truck and the boat. Now, with this new ill-gotten gain, he flew to Reno, Nevada, and over a 72-hour gambling binge, he managed to lose it all at the tables. After sleeping off that gambling binge, he decided that the only thing to do was to walk into the FBI offices in Reno and tell them his story. It was that or end up in a landfill somewhere. The FBI offered him total immunity if he would allow himself to be wired and then go back to the drug gang and set them up so as to implicate them in their drug activity. They even provided him with a story about how he had fallen asleep at the wheel while driving north on Highway 93 between Kingman and Lake Mead. He was told to say that when he was awakened, when the truck wheel dropped off the pavement, he had overcorrected and flipped the boat and trailer. They said to say that he'd panicked and buried the drugs in the desert near Grasshopper Junction and that he abandoned the truck. Well, my dad pulled off the biggest con of his life when he convinced the gang to go with him to dig up the drugs at a location that the FBI had planted a large stash of marijuana. After they dug up the stash, the FBI swooped in and arrested the entire bunch, including my dad. It wasn't long until the leaders of the gang figured out that uh, my father was the result of their problems. And this is where the four agents at my home in Northern California tie in. The result was three years in the Witness Protection Program and repeated locations across Northern California and Nevada. I think growing up in this type of environment led to my unique sense of humor, because that's how we deal with stress in our family. We laughed at adversity as it did no good at all to get depressed or sad about the uncontrollable circumstances we were thrust into. My British mother's dry sense of humor and my dad's love for adventure have led to me being the solid, happy-go-lucky, completely normal person that I am. I've also been told I live in my own imaginary world. And, you know, that's fine with me. As long as my world is uh, my world, not that supposedly normal one that everybody else is stuck in. You see, humor turned out to be my link in sanity. Trying to be positive is the best way that I deal with everything. One of my favorite sayings is that I'm so positive that when I go fishing, I take tartar sauce. You see, that's why in our family, anything that's bad that happens, uh, unpleasant, we sort of manage to turn it into a hilarious situation and a reason to laugh. Now, a normal family in the same situation would probably be turned into basket cases. Now, the following stories are true to the best of my recollection. If they aren't, well, I plead insanity. You see, I'm just crazy about that stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Just Talking Story. If you have any comments or suggestions, please leave them on the comment section of lifewithangie.com. While you're there, if you'd like to buy the storyteller a cup of coffee, there happens to be a donate button just for that. See you next time.